G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day folks and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We are now in the middle of chapter five and uh, also the middle of this season of the podcast, which reminds me of the, uh, the Huey Lewis song, Stuck in the Middle with You, or did I just imagine that? <laughs> I'm not sure it was Huey Lewis. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, I do like that song. Um, yeah, well, you know, this this is where things start to get weird. Rounds uh, to the left of us and jokers to the right. Uh, so, assuming you're not referring to us, but what kind of weirdness are you uh, talking about there, Tim? Uh, well, we talked about this earlier in our series of introductory episodes to this season of the podcast. This is the point where different groups of people using different translations of the original Hebrew Bible start telling their own stories. And it also happens to be the point in the Genesis 5 narrative where some really interesting stuff starts happening in the supernatural realm. Ooh. Now, I mentioned last week when we spoke about Mahalalel and his place in the genealogy that there was some indication that things were not right because he was the first patriarch to not make it to 900 years of age, which, as I said at the time, was indicative of a lack of grace shown to him or perhaps by him in that number five, which we've seen to be representative of grace lacking from that nice round number of 900 Again, this is the point at which the narrative shifts and we see this really strongly coming through in the name of the patriarch, Jared. And Jared is a bit of a controversy, as are the remaining few patriarchs that follow. He's the first point of divergence of the various manuscript traditions which provide different information about his life, so there's unique meaning attributed to different versions of the story. I might just point out before we go any further that I presented a short summary last week of the first five patriarchs as a story that leads up to the exile of the Jews. But it's important to acknowledge that this story is older than even the nation of Israel itself. The overarching story isn't only concerned with the nation of Judah, so the biblical author may have been making a point for his own audience in his own day. But up to this point, the unity in the manuscript tradition tells us that these five patriarchs preserve a message of great importance to all biblical traditions and people groups. And the same cannot be said about the second half of the Genesis 5 story, so we can zoom out a little from our focus on post-exile Judea and consider a broader context which tells the story of humankind in general. And that's what we're going to need to do in order to continue tracking with this genealogy to give us a basis for understanding how these divergent traditions function. So remind us again what those different traditions are exactly. Yeah, for those who are not sure what I'm talking about with regard to these different biblical translations, I'm referring to the fact that the original biblical text as written in Hebrew was translated to Greek in the form that we know as the Septuagint, and it was also translated to Aramaic or Syriac, becoming what we know as the Samaritan Pentateuch. And we also have a Jewish tradition which we know as the Masoretic Text, which was a very late version of the text, which largely followed the original Hebrew that existed at the time of the biblical authors themselves, with some significant deviations interspersed throughout and which was certainly later than the first century and the end of the Second Temple period. This is all stuff we talked about earlier this season. So we looked at this earlier, but to keep it fresh in your mind, I'm going to give you all three variations on the account of Jared. Just like in Neapolitan ice cream. Don't know if they have that in other countries, but uh, Neapolitan, we're going to get all three flavours in one fancy tub. Yeah, you can't beat a good Neapolitan. But what about Trio? Do you remember Trio ice cream? You could only get it in a tub just like Neapolitan, but instead of chocolate and vanilla and strawberry, it had orange and vanilla and lime. Remember that one? I 
didn't remember until you uh, just mentioned it and then a memory came flooding back. But, yeah, I, I can't remember the last time I saw it and I don't even know if it's still available. I, I guess the uh, trio didn't have the staying power of the, uh, the Neapolitan. You just got to stick with the classics, I guess. Yeah, I reckon anything with chocolate in it's going to wipe the floor with lime-flavoured ice cream. I did kind of like it, though. You know what you've done there, and now I'll, I will not rest until I find Trio ice cream. This isn't going to turn into a thing like the uh, the eggnog thing, is it? The, the hunt will be on, I'm sure. It might. Anyway, we need to get back on topic. We're going to start with the new English translation of the Septuagint. We're reading from Genesis 5, verses 18 to 20. And Yared lived 162 years and became the father of Henoch. And Yared lived after he became the father of Henoch, 800 years and had sons and daughters. And all the days of Yared amounted to 962 years, and he died. And again, I've already addressed in some great detail the chronological concerns that will arise as a result of the comparison of numbers between these different versions. And we're going to see those variations as we look at the next translation. This translation of the Samaritan Pentateuch is written very much in the style of the King James Version, but it retains all the textual features of the Samaritan translation. And Jared lived 162 years, and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch 785 years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 847 years, and he died. So that version is going to stand out most notably for the fact that the age of Jared when he dies is significantly less than the age recorded in the other translations, because we'll see that the Masoretic text agrees with the Septuagint on this point. Here's the traditional Masoretic text, which is most likely the one that you'll have in your Bible. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. So that was from the ESV. Not that you will have necessarily noticed this in hearing my reading of the text, but you'll find that in modern translations, the numerical form of these numbers is written down as digits rather than expressed in words, as is the case with Hebrew. Yeah, maybe you're saying that before. Just imagine having to do your tax return and writing it all out in words. What? Yeah. Now, when we look at the three verses in question, what we're going to find initially is that verse 18 is consistent across all three translations. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Although really, we should be reading that as he became the father of Enoch. We already talked in the last season about how men do not give birth. So let's not confuse the issue with translations that favor the patriarchy. I'm looking at you, ESV. But again, we have to get back to the way that these numbers were written in Hebrew and forget this digital representation that our modern translations give us. There are no Arabic numerals in the Hebrew Bible. So we're going to try verse 18 once again. And this time we're going to read the numbers as they are written. And Jared lived two and sixty years and one hundred years, and he begot Enoch. And I actually had to paraphrase there because nobody represents this text accurately in any translation you can buy on the shelf. But why does it matter? Why the need to read these numbers as they are presented in Hebrew? We notice some unusual features when it comes to these numbers associated with Jared. Firstly, we find that the age of Jared at the time when Enoch is born begins with the number two. It's two and 60 and 100. There's a certain significance with the number two as it relates to a principle of either division or unity. In Jewish thought, the number two was a rivalry, for example, Jacob and Esau, or a parting of ways as represented by Abraham and Lot. 
Or it could be seen as two individuals in partnership, as in the situation with Adam and Eve. And the key to interpreting which of these alternatives is intended is, of course, going to come down to context. And the very next number we see is the number 60, which we've talked about extensively with regard to notions of kingship. That's going to help us interpret the number two, because you know that in the ancient world, you cannot share kingship. But we have no evidence of other men competing for Jared's position here in Genesis 5. So if we're going to find out what's going on here, we're going to need the context of the broader story to inform us. And here we are couched in between Genesis 4 and 6. That should be enough to tell us what's going on, even if we're not going to get it in explicit terms. So now we're going to have to wind back the clock and revisit Jared's father, Mahalalel, because you don't give your son a name that means descent, as in coming down from somewhere, from some high place, without a good reason. And it was noted last week when we were talking about this that there was an element of grace that seemed to be lacking from the age of Jared's father. Of course, we could also consider that the number five doesn't have to be specifically connected to grace because five for any Torah observant Jew represents the law itself, the Torah, because it represents those first five books. And you might argue that's a bit self-referential until you remember that we're talking about the primeval history and its relatively late composition as opposed to the rest of the Pentateuch. So could the number five situated within the Torah actually represent the Torah itself? Absolutely. And if that's what we get from the number five that appears to be missing from the father of Jared, in that he lived to be only 895 years old, then we could consider an element of lawlessness at work in his time. So the name of Jared is beginning to fit with this period in the antediluvian story, because now we can see something of a fall reflected in his time, together with the idea of a kind of rivalry of sorts. So this is the setup for the story of the Watchers or the Sons of God. Yeah, and if it's kingship that's in view as the prize of this rivalry, then the stakes of this competition are reflected in the next part of this number that occurs at Enoch's birth because the number 100 is best thought of as 10 times 10 or the totality of humankind. So that means that the number expressed as 2 and 60 years and 100 years is actually an expression revealing the context into which Enoch was born. And I'm sure I don't have to explain much to this audience about the significance of Enoch arriving on the scene at this particular time in history. But of course, we're going to talk about that next time. Right here, we're beginning to see a coalescence of ideas that forms the basis of the Enochian mythos, much like we saw back in Genesis 4 with the life of Lamech. But here we have an expansion because this is going to carry through into the story of Noah. So as is the Jewish storytelling tradition, any story worth telling is worth telling again and making it bigger and adding more detail drawn out from the text. And it's going to keep going in cycles like that, even beyond the pages of scripture. Jared is born at a significant time into a generation that will see, according to Second Temple period sources, the descent and the fall of the sons of God. The author of Jubilees puts it this way in Jubilees 4, verse 15. And in the second week of the 10th Jubilee, Mahalalel took for himself a wife, Dinah, the daughter of Barakiel, the daughter of his father's brother, as a wife. And she bore a son for him in the third week in the sixth year. And he called him Jared, because in his days, the angels of the Lord, who were called watchers, came down to the earth in order to teach the sons of man and perform judgment and uprightness upon the earth. This tradition draws from and builds upon the Greek reading of 1 Enoch chapter 6, verse 6. And that says, And they were altogether two hundred. And they descended into Ardos, which is the summit of Hermon. And they called the Mount Ammon, for they swore and bound one another by a curse. What I read just there is the Ethiopic reading. In the Greek, it says, And they descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon. 
it's worth remembering that the Ethiopic is probably the latest of all the translations of First Enoch. And Jared is mentioned elsewhere in the book, particularly the introduction to chapter 37, which is the beginning of the book of the similitudes, where you get a brief genealogical rundown connecting Enoch back to Adam. So what we see in the Greek version is probably a better preserved portion of the text than the one that made it into the Ethiopic translation. Rather than reading into Ardos, we should be seeing in the days of Jared. And that's why you should never limit yourself to only one source document. So how do we make sure that we're not getting lost in all these Jewish stories and we keep our perspective on the inspired word of God? It's certainly important to maintain a correct perspective once we start getting into these late sources of the Enoch mythos. We're not reading the Enochian literature to inform our reading of Genesis. Instead, we're reading Genesis to uncover the foundations of those later stories. We have to remember that the authors of First Enoch and Jubilees were depending on Genesis. And it wasn't the other way around. And that's why we're paying such close attention to the text of Genesis. What we find along the way is going to be the building blocks from which the later apocalyptic literature will be constructed. That makes good sense. Yeah, it's important for us to follow these interpretive stepping stones because that's the way that's going to lead us into the perspective and the cultural background that informs the New Testament. So what are some of these elements of the text that later interpreters have picked up on in order to give us the story of First Enoch? Then? Well, there are far too many to mention here, so just keeping within the scope of our text for today and looking at the text concerning Jared, we have the meaning of his name, which comes from Yerad, or to descend, and we could look at that as coming down or as a fall or both, and if you're reading it like any good Jew would read it, you're going to see both. That's what we had in Jubilees, where the Watchers were presented initially as teachers and instructors of mankind, before eventually succumbing to the temptation to get involved with human women. Interestingly, in Jubilees, the angels are initially commissioned to teach righteousness, and then later they become corrupt. Whereas in First Enoch, the Watchers teach the arts of civilization with intent to corrupt humanity. Okay, so what else is there? Then we have the age of Jared at the time when Enoch is born, 2 and 60 and 100, as I mentioned earlier, is one way to express the idea of a division or rivalry or enmity between two parties seeking dominion over mankind. I've already talked in some detail in our introductory series of episodes at the beginning of this season about the purpose of giving the remaining years of the life of each patriarch in the list. And we also talked about why the number of remaining years varies in different manuscripts. In this case, because the Greek translation and the Samaritan Pentateuch and the Masoretic text all agree on the age at which Jared had his son Enoch, we would expect to find the same number of remaining years across the board. Remember that the Septuagint normally has a different reading to the other manuscripts with regard to the age at the beginning of the firstborn, which is actually the authoritative reading. And that normally shows up in a different number of years for the time remaining until the death of the patriarch, which again comes at a total age, which we expect to agree across the board when we consider all three translations. But this is where things start getting complicated because the Samaritan Pentateuch has a different number of remaining years for Jared, even though we had unanimous agreement on his age at the birth of Enoch. Let's read it again. And Jared lived 162 years and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch 785 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 847 years and he died. Just as a side note, because I haven't mentioned it for the last five minutes, for those who came in late and aren't sure why I'm defending the Septuagint chronology, you really need to listen to the series of introductory episodes we did at the beginning of this season. It's all explained there, so I'm not going over it again. Anyway, getting back to the Samaritan Pentateuch, Jared lived 785 years after the birth of Enoch, for a total of 847 years at the time of his death. 
That's 115 years less than the other two translations, and it would take an awful lot more than a slip of the pen to arrive at that number. Remember, these numbers are written in whole words, so this isn't a case of just getting a couple of digits wrong. You actually have to write the whole sentence completely differently. You're not going to get that by mistake. Yeah, but hang on a minute, that doesn't even add up. If you start with 162, add 785, you should get 947, which is 100 more than 847. Yeah, that's right. You're pretty sharp there, Chris. The numbers in this translation do not add up. A scribal error might not account for the entire chain of words that represents this number being incorrect, but you can see how you could possibly get one word wrong. The question is, which number is wrong and how do you end up with this error? We can see that it doesn't add up, but we don't necessarily know which number is wrong. It would be easy to say that it was just added up incorrectly and there was an extra 100 added to the total by mistake. But look at the pattern that occurs when we compare the Septuagint to the Samaritan. The Samaritan Pentateuch has consistently removed 100 years from the first five patriarchs and recalculated the ages to match the totals provided in the Septuagint. And in this case, we have a situation where the same calculation has been done but the scribe has not removed 100 years from Jared's age at the birth of Enoch. Even so, he's completed his calculations of Jared's age as though the 100 years had been removed. And he's done that, accidentally, because the focus of this adjustment to the life of Jared is squarely aimed at his death rather than his life. What do you mean? Jared's one of three individuals that, according to the Samaritan Pentateuch, would see their death at the hands of God in the Great Flood. And the text doesn't really have anything to say about the life and conduct of Jared. So as far as source material goes for helping us to see some kind of reason why Jared needed to die in this way, we don't really have much to go on. Perhaps all we can do is put it down to a negative connotation associated with his name. The root behind the name Jared, as I mentioned before, is Yarad, which means to descend. It's actually the same root that we find in the name of the river Jordan. And the Jordan has that name because it descends from a mountain. Which mountain, I hear you ask? Why, that would be Mount Hermon. Coincidence? I think not. So you can see now how easily a person acquainted with the River Jordan would hear the name Yared, Jordan is actually pronounced more like Yardain, and think all those cosmological thoughts that we've been talking about in the early episodes of this podcast. Stuff like water as representative of the spiritual abode, water from the deep, cosmic mountains, all that stuff. Jared isn't just a name, it's a picture of cosmic evil coming down from a place where the heavens converge with the underworld. So according to the Samaritans, he's a bad dude. Cosmic evil. Awesome. That's without going into all the stuff about the way that the Samaritan calendar operated and the way that they've calculated the date of the flood according to the chronology presented in the Book of Jubilees. Basically, because they have the flood date already nailed down to the year Anno Mundi 1307, that's the year of the world, 1307, which is reckoned on Adam's birthday. They have to make adjustments to the chronology presented in the genealogy to make sure that they land on the correct date without any accidental flood survivors. Here's the bit in Jubilees where you get that date. This is Jubilees 522. And Noah made the ark in all respects as he commanded him in the 27th Jubilee of years in the fifth week in the fifth year on the new moon of the first month. So that works out to be 13.07 a.m. So each jubilee is 50 years, right? So the 27th begins 1,300 years after creation. 
Yeah, yeah. And look, they could have changed the ages of some of the earlier patriarchs, but when you're reverse engineering a chronology, you tend to find working from the end toward the beginning is easier than working from the beginning toward the end. You can't interfere with Noah, though, because he's the good guy. So you have to work your way back from there. And that means that Lamech and Methuselah are going to get it. Enoch doesn't live long enough to get the chop anyway, and the final loose end in order to nail that flood date without any extra survivors is to get rid of Jared. I should point out as well that the chronology in the Book of Jubilees was basically invented so that the idea of the Jubilee cycle as a supposedly perfect religious calendar system could work out. Evidently, for many people in the late Second Temple period, inventing a calendar for your religious system was more important than maintaining the integrity of the biblical text. But you won't get a flood date, anything like that, using any reliable manuscript. It's completely fabricated. Anyway, that's enough of that. Next up, we're looking at Enoch. You know that's going to be huge, so stick around for that one. Yeah, I can't wait. But now it's time for our Giant Answers Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your we have a question from Cindy, who's one of our new listeners. So welcome, Cindy. And she sent us this question through our website, which is giantanswers.com. What sources do you look at when doing your research? I assume you have a robust library set up at Logos, and I heard you mention JSTOR for accessing journal articles. Can you explain your thought process when doing your research? Where do you start? What tricks have you picked up for doing searches in various places? Love, love, love the podcast. It's very nice. Keep up the awesome work. Oh, what a lovely statement and question. Take it away, Tim. Thank you so much, Cindy, for those kind words and feedback. That's really appreciated. We do appreciate all the feedback we get, and it's very encouraging. So, yeah, thanks for that. Now, when it comes to sources, and this is cliche, but you absolutely need to be text-driven, and I'm talking about the biblical text. Shouldn't have to say it, but it's the only responsible approach. What does the text say? And when you have that, which is really nothing more than a comprehension exercise, you're going to read it again in a few different translations. And after that, you'll want to look at the original language. And you don't need to know the language to be able to do this. If you have Logos or Blue Letter Bible or something, those are Bible study apps for anyone who's unfamiliar. The tools are at your fingertips. That's going to help you more than just reading a translation because you're going to get past all the helpful, I'm using air quotes there, stuff that translators thought you needed. Earlier in this episode, I was talking about numbers and how you don't have numerals in the text. And the word order is not like anything we see in our Bibles. No Bible translation is going to give you two and 60 years and 100 years when they could just say 162 years. Bam, there goes three significantly meaningful statements replaced by a worthless number. That's why you need to see it in Hebrew. Yeah, I thought that was a really good point, uh, and it's something that most people would miss, I'd imagine. Yeah, again, word order in the original was something we hit on last week when I mentioned Proverbs 27.21, and the fact that a difficult saying was rearranged by translators and put completely backwards because they hadn't picked up on the right aspect of a root word. When you look at the word order in Hebrew, it demands that you maintain that, and then you figure out how to interpret the words themselves. You can't do it any other way. Another thing that will help you, especially to pick up on variations in textual traditions, is to look at different early translations. And I'm talking about the manuscript traditions that we've been discussing here in Season 5 of the podcast, where we've made use of not only the Masoretic text, which most people have in their Bibles, 
but also the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which we know as the Septuagint, and the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is the Aramaic or Syriac translation of the Torah. And that can be especially helpful when you come across difficult terminology. But getting back to root words, especially with Hebrew, you need to be focused on the triliterals. Hebrew words at their base are usually three consonants, more if the word has modifiers attached, but there are no vowels supplied, so don't assume the right ones are provided for you, and play with them a bit. Look at other words based on the same root. This is where concordances really help. You want to know what a Strong's is good for? That's what it's good for. That's going to help you get a vague direction to go with for your interpretation. Strong's, what is it good for? Uh, but I thought Strong's was, uh, you know, was just for old people who didn't have the internet. Thanks for proving me wrong. <laughs> Remember that translation is never an exact word-for-word equivalence. I was speaking to a group recently when we talked about faithfulness and how in the Greek you get the word pistis, which can be translated as faith or faithfulness. And that's because you can't pin the meaning down to this narrow definition in English. Once you start talking about this concept of faithful allegiance, or as Heiser used to say, believing loyalty, then you realise that it entails so much more than a mental acknowledgement of what you believe or which team you're on. That's, that's really powerful because it helps us to understand why James says that faith without works is dead. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's just looking at what words say. It's a whole other thing to understand what the text is affirming. This is where we have to start looking at things like genre. And we have to know figures of speech, metaphors and idioms and all that kind of stuff. That gets you past the literalism and into the meaning of the statement. That's the difference between Ham saw his father's nakedness and Ham took a crack at the kingship. Pardon the pun there. Mm, that's deep. There are so many things to consider. I could honestly talk about this kind of stuff for hours, and we haven't touched on the sound yet. Find yourself some good resources where you can listen to biblical Hebrew being spoken. Just get on YouTube or something. The sound is so important. We have to remember that the first audience of Scripture was one where people would only hear the Word of God being read aloud maybe once a year. They have to remember that all year and be able to meditate on it. And this is how scribes are able to be economical with their word choices. The sound of the word is going to bring to mind other words with relevant meaning to support the context. This also helps it to be memorable because you need to have the right word in place and you can't substitute it for something else because it's going to sound different and that's going to throw the meaning off. You've heard me say it more than once. If you don't hear the text, you're not hearing scripture because it's designed to be read aloud and to be listened to and to be meditated on. And this is where the text critical scholars fall apart because they cannot read the biblical sub-narrative, the stuff that the author wants you to hear and pick up on and think about in order to guide your thoughts as you hear the story. Oh, I love that idea, being able to see beyond the words on the page. It's a real gift. And that's what we're missing out on, I guess, by not being native Hebrew speakers. Yeah, and I'm going to go back to my favorite example of this, which you've heard me talk about before. Nimrod began to be a mighty man on the earth. Why doesn't the author just say that he started to be a mighty man? We have this word halal, which means to begin, but there is another word that sounds identical and is even spelt the same, and that word doesn't mean begin. It means to defile or profane or to desecrate, and you can't hear one without hearing the other. The author could have used any other word to describe the beginning of Nimrod's rise to power, but we don't get any other word, we get that one. And the reason is because you don't hear just one word, you hear both. The beginning of Nimrod's rise to power was in his corruption, his defilement, and the desecration of who he was in order to achieve the power of a god. Again, the biblical sub-narrative was right there the whole time, but for those guys who are only focused on the written word, and they're all about grammar and construction and verbal forms and all the rest of that, which is important, don't let anyone tell you different, but they're missing this because they're not hearing the text. 
when you hear that word halal, it brings you back to Genesis 8, to Genesis 6, to Genesis 4. And these are the verbal cues designed to fill you in on the biggest themes occurring in Scripture that are guiding the whole story. And that's why you can't just leave it at a surface reading of the text. And speaking of themes, you have to be thinking so much bigger than word studies as well. Look at biblical motifs. Look at stories that seem to keep coming up over and over again. The woman drawing water at the well. Stories about crossing water. The barren woman who conceives. The hero who looks like he could be the Messiah until he lets us down. The younger brother preferred over the firstborn. Trees, mountains, bodies of water. These are the kind of things you need to be paying attention to. Yeah, that's a good point. Those things don't show up in Scripture again and again for no reason. So let's talk about other resources outside of Scripture itself. And Cindy, you mentioned Logos Bible Software, which can be a really valuable resource if that's the kind of thing that works for you. I have Logos, but I almost never use it, and that's not to take anything away from it. I think it's a fantastic resource. But just speaking about what works for me, I don't find Logos very intuitive, and I get a lot more mileage out of a free app like the Blue Letter Bible app. But I think the strong point of Logos is the fact that you have an extensive library at your fingertips, which is really about all I use it for. Outside of Bible study tools like that, my main go-to resources would be things like Charlesworth's Old Testament Pseudepigrapha two-volume set. And yes, I still use a selection of hard copy resources, mainly because I've inherited a wealth of fantastic books from great people in my life, which have proved to be very useful. And I've come to depend on them pretty much on a weekly basis. And there's the usual stuff that'll fill any Bible student's library, stuff like Josephus, Philo and others. And I'm not too particular about which ones you have, because I'm sure, as you can already tell, I'm a lot more interested in what the Bible has to say within itself than I am about what other people have to say about their limited understanding of Scripture. And for that reason, I don't have a whole bunch of Bible dictionaries and commentaries and overviews and that kind of thing. Maybe one or two of each, and I rarely use them. If you're going to get a commentary, then get one specifically on the passage that you're reading, not some generic Old Testament overview or something. Those things really aren't good for very much. Grab yourself an old Bible with the Apocrypha still in it, and nobody's telling you that you have to treat it as inspired or you shouldn't be reading it in church or whatever. I'm just saying, if you don't know the stories, then you don't understand how the scripture that inspired the stories was understood. And that's really what we're all about, whether we're talking about the Apocrypha or not. All of this stuff is really there to help you frame an answer to this question, which is, what can the biblical text sustain? In other words, you know that you're going to approach the text with a certain idea already in mind because you're human and you can't help that. That's not going to go away. Any fanciful notions of being able to approach Scripture objectively are just nonsense because you can't do it. But when you start looking at Scripture the way that I'm talking about here, you'll soon realize that a lot of the ideas that we bring to the text simply do not stand up under scrutiny. Because if you can't go through methods like these to arrive at those conclusions, then you really have to ask, on what basis are you attributing that interpretation of the text in question? And more often than not, you'll find the answer to that question is that you were informed by traditions or it's what you grew up with or you were thinking about some other part of the text and not actually reading the text in front of you. And that's common. That happens to everyone. The question is, can we see that and recognize it and call it out and repent? And repentance is really what this is all about, because there's no biblical teaching if there is no repentance. If you're not teachable, if you can't mold yourself around Scripture instead of molding the Scripture around you, and you're really not learning from Scripture and you're not submitting to the Word of God. I was listening to a podcast recently where somebody called in and asked the host a question about where a particular doctrine of the church came from. And the answer was, well, we have it in the church fathers and we have it in our hymnography. And I was just amazed that it wasn't coming from scripture. And I thought to myself, what would a first century believer have thought about these things? 
And I thought about how modern people like to hang crap on the rabbis because of the way that they interpret things, but at least the rabbis were text-driven. At least the rabbis can come back to the Word of God as the basis for whatever wild and fanciful idea they've come up with. And they're at least trying to make it work somehow, even if they're barking up the wrong tree a lot of the time. And at least you can see evidence that they've been trying to work all these things out from the text. Having said that, I really don't like to rely on the interpretations of the rabbis because they're very late chronologically and they do go into some really weird places with the text mainly because they tend to focus on hyper-literalism, which just makes the text almost comical when you see the lengths that they'll go to in order to defend the wrong conclusion. And you've got things like Moses being 10 cubits high like he's a giant. Uh, if you're really serious about interpreting the Bible in its own context, then you need to see how it was understood within that context and not a 1,000 years later or even 2,000 years later, for that matter, which is why I steer clear of most Bible commentaries and that kind of thing. I tend to stick with the scholars who are engaged in the immediate context of Scripture rather than some guy who used to be the pastor of a church and has started writing books to fund their retirement. Yeah, it's much better to stick with people who have some relevant credentials. Yeah, I'm not hung up on following people with credentials, but I certainly think that helps. When I look at people to follow, I'm looking for consistency. I want to see how their approach works in every part of the Bible and not just their favourite bit. If you get that, you're onto a winner. It doesn't matter what their title is. Some scholars are really going to let you down because they stray too far outside their area of expertise. And you notice immediately when they do that, because they start talking about the topic in question like it isn't really important. So what I'm talking about here are situations where you have a scholar who will discount the supernatural worldview of the ancient world as if it was just something they believed, but not something that was real. More commonly, you'll find people that will take that kind of approach with cosmology. And they'll be telling you things like ancient people really did believe the world was flat and it had a big dome over the top and things like that, which again really can't be substantiated from the biblical text. Then you have people telling you that eschatology is worthless or that chronology doesn't matter, even historicity, if you can believe that. And you're going to find everywhere you look, you'll come across really intelligent scholars who have a wealth of knowledge to share, but then they get out of their area of expertise and you just know at the moment they open their mouth because they start displaying how their understanding doesn't work consistently throughout the biblical corpus, usually because they start avoiding stuff that you were hoping they'd talk about. I hate it when that happens. And that's not saying that you shouldn't follow those guys because everybody has their thing they're good at and things they're not good at. That's really the whole principle behind the church as the body of Christ. You're not going to find a person who is the package deal. Everybody has to contribute together. And then there's academic material itself. And you're right, Cindy, I have mentioned websites like JSTOR where you can get online and find all kinds of academic literature, and which is accessible for free if you just sign up for an account. And there are other ones as well, like academia.edu and plenty more if you're prepared to pay for them. I generally find I can get most things without getting paywalled if I look hard enough. The biggest challenge can just be using a search tool like Google Scholar and just entering the right search terms to find what you're looking for. Of course, it really helps if you already know what you want. You can be specific. That's where it's handy to have a hard copy library accessible because you're going to be able to look up the footnotes, find references that you want to follow up on and chase those resources specifically. And you never know what you're going to find in the academic material, but make sure you check how old it is and check how many other people cite that material as a source. And that just keeps you out of the obscure stuff that isn't really credible or is out of date. Anyway, there's a lot more that I can say, but we're limited for time. So I'm going to leave it there. Hopefully that was helpful for you, Cindy. And it just goes to show you that you don't need a lot of money to have access to great resources and to get a lot out of your Bible study. Yeah, and that's really encouraging. And it also means that you can start small in terms of how much work you put into your Bible study and you can expand as you grow those muscles. Yeah, that's right, Chris. I really want to encourage people to take the time to pick up their Bibles because if I can do it, anybody can do it. I'm not even that smart. I just make the time for it. 
<laughs> okay. Well, let's wrap it up there, and we'll be back soon with the next patriarch on the list, the one everybody's been waiting for. Yeah, join us when we talk about Enoch, the man who walked with God, or was that God's? What? Coming soon on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. A scribal error might not account for the entire chain of words that represents this number being incorrect. Ah, incorrect. 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 Um, I was supposed to put that in bold, wasn't I? I can, uh, I can read the subtext. Very good. Uh, <laughs> we have a question from Cindy, who's one of our new listeners. Welcome, Sydney. Sydney. Hmm. I thought you were going to say Sydney there. Hello, Sydney. Was that, uh, was that the Scream movie? Um, Anyway, yeah, so let's talk about other resources outside of Scripture itself. And, Cindy, you mentioned Logos Bible stuff. At, huh, let's try that again. These people that listen to me think I'm a genius or something, or, you know, that I've got everything all figured out. I'm like, uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> may your dreams be sweet and may also your breakfast tomorrow. Mm, and also with you. Amen.